Hello and welcome to the Tao of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society, and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art for good measure. I'm Laura Hilliger. And I'm Doug Belshaw. This podcast season is currently unfunded. You can support this podcast and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com forward slash we are open. We have, though, got one person, Laura, who is supporting us in our endeavors. Do you see this? Uh, is it a new person? It's actually two people. Um, so Adam Proctor, who has been on this podcast, um, has supported the Tao of Wow, which is very kind of him. Thank you, Adam. But also, um, we've had a new one. Tim Eccleston has um, started contributing monthly to this podcast. Awesome. And he is an independent data consultant trying to make technology, the economy, and government all work for all people equitably and inclusively. So thank you, Timothy. Yeah, that sounds like our kind of person. Thanks, Tim. So it's been a while. We've released one podcast episode so far, um, and that was Kaylee Walsh from Outlandish about um, restorative justice. If you missed that, go back and have a listen. But I've been away on holiday. Um, You've been working. You're about to go away on holiday. Let's just catch up on all that kind of stuff, and then we'll dive into some things about information environments, civil society, and maybe even mention the Elon Musk and Twitter words. Uh, yeah. So how was your holiday? Well, I had three weeks off because I, I am a firm believer that after the, after the second week is only when you get properly into non-work mode. So the first week I walked Hadrian's wall. Sadly, the person I was going to work with, walk it with got COVID. So I did it myself and I decided to walk it as quickly as possible. End up doing it in 72 hours, which I was very proud about. It took me a week to recover. Um, and then did some DIY, and then we went to Croatia. And in Croatia, we experienced amazing, wonderful weather and sights, but also an earthquake. Hajduk split fans setting up so many flares in their match against Dynamo Zagreb that we couldn't see the pitch. Um, and the Bora winds, which I think you're familiar with, which rattled the house. So, yeah, it was kind of a roller coaster, but back now and all refreshed. That sounds like you had a number of adventures. You want to tell our listeners a little bit about Hadrian's Wall, what it is, how far? You did it in three days. That's amazing. Uh, how were your feet? You have to stop me at this point. So um, Hadrian's Wall, right? So um, imagine it's like 200 AD and um, you've conquered most of Europe and then you've got these really unruly Caledonians, what we would call Scottish people now, causing problems for the edge of your empire. They decided, sick of these people, we're just going to build a wall and kind of retreat. That's what they decided to do. So they actually built two walls, not bore with that detail. But the first, the, the most one that's most important and most famous is Hadrian's Wall. It goes from Bowness on Solway, which is near Carlisle in the northwest of England, and it finishes coincidentally in a place called Wall's End in Newcastle. Um, 84 miles of uh, wall, quite thick in most places, and um, lots of remains left in the middle. So I walked it west to east because of the prevailing winds. Um, Usually it takes about four or five days to walk, but hey, I decided to walk as quickly as possible and I couldn't really walk by the time I got to Wall's End, but that was all right. And the start is very flat. The middle is hilly as hell. And then the end is quite flat as well. Um, So it was one of those things where it felt like a personal challenge and I felt like I stepped up to it. So that was good. And also... I've that- seen a lot of those sites before because I used to be a history teacher and I grew up in that area. So there we are. 
And is that the first time that you've done a multi-day hike? I've done like, yeah, a two-day hikes don't really count as multi-day, do they? Yeah, well, three isn't that much more than two, but you were supposed to take five. Yeah, which I feel I would... like if you walk and then you camp and then you walk again, that's just like, it's not the same as like doing three days and camping twice, maybe. I don't I know. I did, did three nights as well. So 72 hours was 10 a.m. on Monday until 10 a.m. on Thursday. So it actually included three nights. Yeah. So yeah, only day. Yeah. And when you say it took a week to recover, what do you mean by, did you just like sit around the whole second week of your vacation? No, and... I did like, yeah, I, I painted the fence and looked after the kids and stuff, but not in a very active way. Mm-hmm. Like I think I either pulled or maybe even slightly tore, I'm not sure, the top of my left calf muscle because um, I wasn't really looking after myself on the last day. I was just going for it. And then I did something which caused a massive flare up around my ankles something to do with like the rubbing of it or whatever but in general that's all i had to deal with and i thought you know i'm 41 i felt like i did okay and looked after myself a bit so yeah cool yeah i'm planning some more kind of walks and hikes and that kind of thing i think that's a good thing to do so that's what i'm gonna do yeah and do you have any particular insights to the nature that you saw in your nature walk in the walk in the wall my main insight were that Romans were fascists. <laughs> okay. But I mean it in a very literal way. So the the, f- the word fascist comes from a bundle of sticks, and I can't remember the exact kind of derivation, but it comes from the Roman word for this bundle of sticks that was used in their process. So if you think about it, really, the Roman Empire was a dictator, then a bunch of oligarchs, a bit like Russia, I guess, and then just going conquering loads of countries and then yeah providing some infrastructure but also like just commandeering all of the the local people and extracting money from them so i had a lot of time to think about that kind of stuff on the walk and i realized that although the romans are held up as this amazing thing wasn't like a it wouldn't have been an awesome place necessary to live in for example this podcast going off on a tangent for example when the romans left None of the people left behind in England knew how to maintain the roads and stuff. Mm. So, like, they just nicked all the stone and built buildings and whatever. So were they a force for good? Who knows? Well, certainly not for anybody that was uh, not, you know, in Roman high society and a dude. Because, you know, women and slaves now didn't really have any sort of a... (laughs) Well, you say you say that, but there is one sli- There is one emperor who was it? He basically built um, split in Croatia. Mm-hmm. Um, he started off a slave and ended up an emperor. Constant, That's... not Constantine. The one before Constantine. I can't remember his name. I couldn't tell you, not without looking it up. Anyway, what are we talking Anyways. about? You're going on holiday next week. I am. And hopefully you won't experience the Bora winds as you're sailing. Yes, I. we are going to sail in Sardinia. I've never been to Sardinia, so I'm really looking forward. I've heard it's very beautiful. Uh, with I've heard there's pink beaches and just like pure, pristine, clear waters. It's probably going to be a bit cold. Um, it's pre-season. We never go during the sailing season because... There's other people. <laughs> so, we, you know, I mean, it, like sailing, it, it sounds like such a luxury thing, but actually it's just camping on the water. 
Mm. Um, so, mm. you know, you basically don't shower for a couple of weeks and well, you can jump in the ocean. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, like the, I, I was sailing a couple of years ago and I literally did not take a shower for two weeks and it did not matter. I didn't stink. My hair looked amazing. I was like, I'm never showering again. But then I came back to, you know, not the ocean um, and realized that, yeah, you can't actually maintain a level of cleanliness if you're not swimming three times a day in the ocean. Mm. So, yeah. That is a very nice segue between. (laughs) No, 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 no. Hear me out. This is a nice segue from re-entering society to talking about democracy and civil society. There Ooh, we go. Good. That? Yeah, that was that was pretty good. Smooth. So, um, I read a book, and uh, it's it was good. And I want to talk about it. And you wrote some stuff, and you're always writing things. And we thought we'd weave this together. So, dear listener, there are some of these episodes where we talk to other people. So we've got some more lined up like that. But we thought we'd weave in ones where. Laura and I just have a bit of a chat about things we're interested in and things we're thinking about at the moment. And this is one of those episodes. So if you're hoping that a guest is magically going to appear like some kind of genie, you might want to stop this podcast now. But otherwise, we're looking forward to talking for another 20 minutes about some stuff. About some stuff. Well, specifically, we're going to dive into, you know, what we say in our little opener a podcast about the intersection of technology, society, and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art. Although I didn't put any art in. I would argue that some of the intellectual ideas we're going to be discussing today are art. Mm. Um, Knowledge is, I think, knowledge can be pretty arty. So when we started this podcast, like series one, the very first episode, the idea was to keep them kind of evergreen so that you could listen to them at any time. Now, we've already very much situated this podcast episode in a particular time period in April 2022, given that we're talking about our holidays. So we might as well mention that, you know, Elon Musk has basically just bought Twitter. And that is kind of the spur for some of these conversations. Um, because, you know, it's not just about him, but it's about like the entire space and society and technology and, and stuff like that. Yeah, so I thought we you're, uh, Well, I thought that you were a blog post uh, that you wrote, I think, this morning um, about Twitter and Musk buying Twitter. I thought that that had some really good points. I mean, I wasn't surprised by any of them, but I, I think it's really interesting how people people might think that it's, you know, no big deal. It's just a new private, private owner, whatever. Twitter was always a private company and what's a big deal. But, uh, what we know about Elon Musk and the fact that he's so rich, he can just, you know, decide to kind of mess with the fabric of society in, um, in some ways, I think is mm-hmm. a, it's a really interesting place to start. If we want to talk about information environments, the internet as a civic space, um, and, you know, some of the stuff around, identity and how we as human beings behave because of uh, or in spite of the internet. Hmm. So maybe we should just skirt over the fact that billionaires shouldn't exist um, (laughs) and get kind of straight into what he said about the purchase and what is meant by the words that he used that seemed on the surface as being unproblematic. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that the term free speech is quite an interesting thing to to wrap our heads around because in the last five, 10 years, the term free speech has come to mean something very different. And I think the internet has a lot to do with that. 
Um, so, you know, in analog society, um, we kind of have the right to, to walk away from people who are saying things that are mm. harming us in some way. And on the internet, I don't think it's quite that easy. You have to be a lot more vigilant uh, in order to sort of hone your information environment to being something that is, you know, not maybe harmful to, to yeah, you. Yeah, so he said, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. That seems unproblematic, but I was reading someone, I'll not be able to find it again quickly, but they were saying basically, I think it was like the founder of Reddit. So I'll see if I can find him put in the show notes. And he was saying, look, Elon Musk comes from old school, libertarian, like original internet is a wild west kind of culture where free speech is like, hey, we can do whatever we want on the internet. It's a whole new frontier. But actually, he's now bought a company where there's culture wars happening between the left and the right. And they both mean different things by free speech. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the right are free speech is... I can say whatever I want without there being any consequences, um, which, you know, I was thinking about this earlier. We wouldn't have laws around incitement to violence if you yeah. could say anything you wanted. Yeah? Or defamation. Right, exactly. And then on the left, there's like free speech as in like, I can be who I want to be in a space and represent myself and speak my truth. Um, when, whereas people on the right are like, well, no, there's there's only two genders and, you know, there's there's all that kind of stuff happening. So the culture wars are using similar language to what Elon Musk is using, but I think they're all se meaning separate things, which is going to lead to some interesting clashes. We'll, well, I think, I mean, the other point that you made in your post that I think is really interesting is about the idea of Twitter as, a, as the digital town square and the fact that Twitter is not a public space. It does not include all of the public. It is not owned by the public. Um, and the sort of the rules and regulations around how social media work are not the same as how a public space should work or would work in civic society. Like we don't have yeah, input into that. Yeah, I think that, that the analog of that is if you go to big shopping centers these days, they can sometimes be massive and look like or even present themselves as being like a town square. But there were security guards there. And if you started protesting or if you started doing something which wasn't cool, you'd be kicked out, which isn't what we mean by democracy. So, yeah, it's yeah. quite interesting. And my my prediction, it's not a radical one, is that even though Donald Trump has said, oh, yes, I'm sticking on Truth Social, he will be back on Twitter before the end of the year. Yeah. Agreed. The other point I made on that post was that Twitter isn't as big as people think it is. It hasn't even got as many users as Pinterest, never mind Instagram or Facebook. Um, I was actually, actually, I was really surprised by that um, because Pinterest doesn't strike me as um, a big social network for whatever reason. I mean, mm. maybe I I've got my numbers wrong, but I, I found this on a, a reference, a third party post. I also found that um, if you believe what I've quoted, people on average use seven different social platforms on average. And that would include, you know, Telegram, Signal, WhatsApp, whatever. So, yeah, it it's not the town square. It's a town square. And I think that maybe, again, it's only me sitting in my office in the north of England. Who, who cares? But I would say that peak Twitter has, has gone 
like yeah it's only going to dwindle in influence yeah well i think you know the other i think this hooks into the the book you read um the internet is not what you think it is um in that book you also had a blog post which we'll link to in the show notes but um it was talking about that there's sort of four charges and the second one around um the idea that social media is shaping our lives through an algorithm mm. i think that i think that that is that's a really interesting hook into what Twitter is and why it's not a town square or why it's not a good example of democracy because the algorithm is, you know, it is controlling and it's the same for all the social medias, but it's controlling what you see when and why. Um, yeah. So this book is The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, A History, A Philosophy, A Warning by Justin E.H. Smith. And my understanding is that he wrote a he wrote a blog post which went viral and then he ended up writing a book out of it. Um, and he, I don't exactly, he lives in New York. His background's philosophy. Um, and he spends a lot of time talking about Gottf Gottfried Leibniz. Um, but it's a really good book. Um, and it might just be because I am a philosophical bent, as I know you are as well, Laura. Um, when I see reviews of it which are negative, it's like, oh, he's not, he hasn't, he, he says the internet is not what you think it is. And he hasn't told us what it actually is. It's, it's a nuanced book. Like he's, mm. he's doing philosophy. So there's that. But yeah, that second point, he says, uh, second, the internet runs on algorithms and shapes human lives algorithmically. And human lives under the pressure of algorithms are not enhanced, but rather warped and impoverished. To the extent that we are made to conform to them, we experience a curtailment of our freedom. Yeah. And when I read that, I was reminded of a book I read a while ago and could not summarize for you, but it was called um, Mindware, an Introduction, Introduction to the Philosophy of Cognitive Science by Andy Clark. Um, mm. And that book was really talking about how technology is a cognitive extension and always has been. So not just the internet, but books are a cognitive extension. A pencil is a cognitive extension. It's a way to sort of help human beings um, process the complexity of their own cognition, these tools. Mm. Um, and I, I, you know, in thinking about shaping life by an algorithm, um, Mindware talks about what it, what is a good model of human intelligence, because a model is just a model. It's not, it's, it's not the real thing. Um, and so when you're thinking about algorithms and how they influence behavior or how they influence cognition, I think there's something really interesting there around the fact that these are always going to be models. Um, and so they like using the same sort of cognitive mod model for multiple people is basically impossible, which you also touch on in that post when you're talking about the fact that um, things like unconscious bias or, you know, our history, our experience influences the way that we see certain things. Um, and so this yeah, and this reminds me of a book which I'm holding up to the webcam, and you can't see, listener. But I've referenced this to Laura lots of times before. Um, when I was doing my postgraduate studies, um, someone we had to study this book by Gareth Morgan called "Images of Organization," which is a book from the 1980s. Um, and the point that he makes in it is that the way that people see the organization in which they're working changes their behavior. So, for example. If you see it as a machine, you'll act in a certain way. If you see it as a brain, you'll do it. Or as, um, I don't know, as a uh, as a culture or as 
an instrument of domination or whatever. So it matters what the CEO thinks, but it also matters what the people inside the organization thinks. And if you think about that more widely, that's what you're saying in terms of, well, if you see society as being, I don't know, a machine or algorithmic or whatever, it shapes what you do. Um, And in this book, he says, which is what I think you're saying, like the internet is not this massive rupture with what's gone before. It might feel like that because we've lived through it or the change, but actually it's not that different. And in fact, he says, um, the internet is still not what you think it is. For one thing, it's not as nearly as newfangled as the previous chapter made it appear. It does not represent a radical rupture with everything that came before, either in human history or the vastly longer history of nature that precedes the first appearance of our species. It's rather only the most recent permutation of a complex of behaviours that is as deeply rooted in who we are as a species as anything else we do, our storytelling, our fashions, our friendships, our evolution as beings that inhabit a universe dense with symbols. So he's talking about kind of us exchanging stories and symbols to help understand who we are and what we're doing and Mm -hmm. how the internet is just like that on steroids. It's not like massively new. I think that my favorite class when I was a undergrad was a class called um, Art, Media, and Technology. I don't know what the number was, but I was an undergrad still. Um, and the professor was amazing. And he started his class talking about art and technology at the point of which um, when humans developed writing and symbols. Um, because what we were doing is to come back to this mindware thing, we were creating an extension of our cognition to make ourselves understandable to other people. So a symbol mm. was simply a way for us to take a shortcut. We carved symbols on, you know, our vase of rice what are those urn the giant things that we used to store rice on uh in you know and we would mark it so that other people would know what was inside without having to open it up it was a shortcut um Mm -hmm. and he was able to to start there in this in this class and go all the way to the invention of the internet he covered you know from writing to you know the telegraph which was a way for us to take a shortcut, um, you know, in communicating across long distances. And, you know, one of my favorite examples of how media actually influences us as a society is the Titanic. The reason that the Titanic is a, you know, a, a story and a history that is really well known is not because it was a big boat that sank. Lots of boats sank. Boats sank all the time. That was no big deal. What was different was that it was the first time that it was happening in real time because of the telegraph. It was the first time Uh, that people in New York knew what was happening in real time because of Morse code and the telegraph. And the reason it was such a big story was was because the media was there to provide us with that sort of real real time impulse. And like people came along. Yeah, and I think if we look into the the past, which is why I love history so much, we see that although things might look on the surface as being different underneath the the intention is the same so there's a book um which i listened to on audiobook robert mcfarland's underland where he goes under in like caves and all and in this he goes to this really remote cave um in greenland i think it is and there's handprints and it's red okra that has been like put in the mouth and spat someone's put their hand on the wall and they've like spat this red okra around it which if you think about it is kind of the closest they can get to doing a selfie. Like this hand was here and you could 
you know, you could put your hand and say, I have been here before, you know, that kind of thing. So the, the intention behind it is is the same, even though the, the means of expression is, is different. And if you're spitting okra on your hand, you're also doing a duck face, which is still common today in our selfies. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh dear. Well, I would highly recommend reading the books that um, we've mentioned. I haven't read the one that you mentioned, Laura, so I'll have to add that to my list. Yeah, it's but, um, um, it's it's really interesting. It's quite dense. Um, I think that it's actually used as a textbook in like introductions to right. uh, neurocognitive philosophy and stuff. So it's 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 pretty dense, but there's a lot of really interesting. Um, interesting things about technology mimicking cognition or its inability to do so. And I think this mm. is, this ties really nicely into sort of the, the conversation around AI and how people in technology think about AI versus how maybe a, a layperson might think about AI. Like there's a lot of fear around AI that, it, you know, it's going to take over the world and, you know, full Terminator mode. Well, you know, Elon Musk saying, oh, we're going to open source the Twitter algorithms as if, and then everything will be okay. And we're going to authenticate all of the humans as if that will make it okay. And so the second one of those, authenticating everyone, that doesn't really solve anything because there's actually studies show that it makes no difference whether people use their real name or not as to how they kind of like troll-like behavior, but it makes a big difference to people who have a vested interest in hiding their identity. Because, for example, they're doing some kind of transition in life, or they might experience violence if they re um, release their real name or, or whatever it is. So there's, it seems like a common sense thing, but actually it's not true. And then open sourcing stuff, you'd think because we've got a co-op called We Are Open, I'd be all over that. But actually, just because you can see something doesn't mean you understand it. And it's not like the algorithm is going to be saying, oh, boost all of the things which are republican and hide everything that is democrat like these are very technical things with long numbers and coding and stuff and they don't necessarily intend to do what they end up doing so it's going to be interesting to it's see when it is open sourced how people react to that yeah I think um, we did an episode last season about myths and disinformation and sort of talking mm. about the way that information um, kind of di can diverge from the original truth and meaning. Um, and I think that the thing about social media algorithms and their, the complexity of them is because they're using a very complex data landscape that means that when you are seen through the eyes of the algorithm, you're seen in all of these different tiny little facets that the algorithm then pulls together to sort of create a profile of what you might be interested in. Um, mm. It's the, the spaces between the facets are not covered. And so the, the algorithm is also taking shortcuts, big shortcuts, and it's making assumptions about, about people and about what you might like um, with these huge gaps and spaces. And it's one out, you know, it's like using different data sets for different people, but it's still the same sort of processing. So the, yeah. the holes between um, that's, you know, that's where the identity question comes in and who you are as an individual and as a human. And that's, you know, open sourcing it isn't going to mean that it's somehow magically, um, you know, a, a better 
serving better content yeah, or some something. Of them are product decisions. So one I saw on Mastodon, Mastodon Mastodon's Twitter accounts got quite feisty recently given all of the Elon Musk stuff. And one of the things that they pointed out, which is so obvious that it's almost not worth mentioning, but it is a big difference to what went before. Um, so 2014, I wrote a post, which we've referenced in the show notes, called Curate or Be Curated, Why Our Information Environment is Crucial to a Flourishing Democracy and Civil Society. Like You could see what was coming with Twitter introducing an algorithm. But one of the decisions that they made, it wasn't accidental, was that people would be able to see what you liked and would have it promoted in your timeline. So Laura likes something. I seem to like interact with Laura a lot. Therefore, they're going to show me what Laura likes, even though Laura hasn't retweeted it or actually done anything else with it. So it the point that this the Mastodon account was using was that or making was that when you use a service you have to understand what's what it's doing and you, there has to be an intention behind it. And they were making the point that the algorithm isn't working with the best intentions of users because, yeah, because of all the things I've just said. So I thought, I thought that was interesting because there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of appeals to common sense here when actually there's not a lot of common sense in the day-to-day usage of the product yep. and the platform. Yeah, because... You know, if I if I like something, you have absolutely no context to why I liked something. And people like stuff to come back to it when they don't agree with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is why they start wearing bookmarks and whatever. Anyway, I thought you made a good point in our show notes about the link between potentially this book, the the internet is not what you think it is. Um, and Marshall McLuhan. So let's just recap what those four things, those four charges are that Smith makes about the internet. Um, He says, first, the internet is addictive and thus incompatible with our freedom. Um, Second, the internet runs on algorithms, which is what we've just been talking about, which um, they kind of, what does it say? The internet runs on algorithms and shapes human lives algorithmically. Third, there's little or no democratic oversight regarding how social media works. And then finally, oh, so I'm trying to skim through this uh, this quotation here. Uh, fourth, the internet is now a universal surveillance device. So it's incompatible with the preservation of our political freedom. So yeah, Maybe. addictive, runs on algorithms, no democratic oversight and a surveillance machine. I think, I mean, I think that we could do a show on each one of those four charges and, you know, Mm. fill up all of the time. Um, That could be season five. We just pick apart, you know, one specific book. Mm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I I put in uh, McLuhan's Four Laws because for anybody who uh, doesn't, hasn't read Marshall McLuhan, um, he was an academic and a scholar um between uh, he was very very active between 30 1930 1960 um and he died in 1980 but he so i mean for context he was talking about media before the internet was as ubiquitous as it is in our lives today. Um, mm. But a lot of a lot of people who spend a lot of time online or who are involved in educational technology have time and time again referenced some of McLuhan's work uh, in thinking about how the internet actually does influence society and how it influences us as human beings. 
Um, and so I just dropped in into the show notes, um, which we'll publish for you, the four laws that McLuhan documented about how uh, media or technology uh, affect society. Um, and what he did was he came up with four questions um, to help you sort of pick apart what does this particular technology mean. And I think it's really interesting if you do, if, if you apply these questions, um, you could apply them very broadly to the internet as like a thing that exists, but you could also apply them to specific products. Um, and that's kind of what I was thinking about in reference to, you know, Musk buying Twitter and reading your post. And I was just thinking like, what, what actually what changes with Musk buying Twitter and with his intentions there? And if we look through McLuhan's four laws, what, what does the conversation become? Hmm. Yeah. And these, these four laws, I mean, initially we were thinking, oh, do these map onto those four things from, from Smith? But I think it's, it's just a different frame for, for thinking about what's, what's going on. So, you know, as you say, it's what, what does this new technology, so it might be the internet or it might be mobile phones or it might be Twitter or whatever, but what does it enhance? Like, what does it improve? What does it uh, retrieve? So what original idea is being brought back? So this is what Smith's talking about. Like, these aren't necessarily new ideas, but they're coming across. And these these two things are known as figure qualities. Um, and then there's two things about which are ground quality. So when people are talking about figure and ground, which my thesis supervisor used to say all of the time, um, the reverses bit is like what happens when it's pushed to its limit? Like what's the reductio ad absurdum of this? Like if you take it all the way to its logical conclusion, uh, what you know what what happens then? And then the other one is obsolescence. Like what what is made obsolete by this technology? So you mentioned the the telegraph before. No one's sending telegraphs anymore. Why? Because we have, well, telephones, we have instant messaging and, and chat apps and all that kind of stuff and video calls. So it's an interesting thing to, to think about, just even with Twitter, like if you applied McLuhan's tetrads to Twitter as opposed to Mastodon, for example, which is a federated social network, or Bonfire, which is something I've been working on, which is kind of slightly different to Mastodon. Like, what are the differences between them? And I think McLuhan's stuff is quite useful for that. Yeah, I think, I mean, in reference to the four charges, um, I think that you could potentially apply those four questions to each of the charges, like to sort mm. of de deconstruct what... Um, you know, what this book is saying around the internet being addictive and influencing behavior, et cetera, et cetera. You could look at these four questions from McLuhan and essentially say, okay, well, if we're going to talk specifically about how the internet influences behavior, what kind of behaviors are, are we no longer, you know, as humans performing because the internet exists and we don't, we don't need them anymore. Or, mm. you know, what, what kinds of communicative actions have come back because of the internet, which I think is also a really interesting lens because, you know, there's, I don't know if you've read a lot about like the elderly in the internet, but like Facebook is, it's not, I, I hate Facebook. I don't use Facebook. Everybody knows that. Um, but Facebook as a as a platform for people who are otherwise disconnected or living in rural areas is a godsend. I mean, it's mm. it's a hugely beneficial and it has retrieved their ability to actually connect with with people around them or connect with live people. Right. 
you know? So it's, it's not, I, I think it's really interesting the way that internet culture today has like, I feel like there's a lot of damning of the internet lately because it has become kind of a corporate cesspool. Um, but the, yeah. And the things which are being criticized, it's, it's not like what they're not criticizing. Isn't, you know, T, the TCP IP protocol, they're criticizing, as you say, the corporate takeover of social spaces. Yeah. And just on that bit about Facebook, I was reading about Japanese care robots um, while I was on holiday. And I'll not be able to find it quickly, but they were basically saying that at first look, you think, oh my goodness, we're outsourcing care to humanoid machines. But actually, if people have, if it's, if people are getting the kind of response, like as opposed to nothing, they're getting some kind of empathy or, or whatever. Is that not okay? And it's the same with like Amazon Alexa, again, for elderly people. If you can talk to something and it applies to you and gives you information and is kind of funny and whatever, it's a machine that's being programmed. But is it better than nothing? Probably. Like it, where the boundaries are here is quite problematic. It's it's interesting because, you know, interacting with technology also allows us to interact as humans in a very different way. Like you just brought up Alexa and I remember a time, I think it was a MozFest. I'm not sure, but I was at an event with a number of colleagues and there were like four or five or six of us. And we mm. were all staying in an Airbnb together and it had a, uh, what's the Alexa name? The Google Alexa. Is there a name for that thing? Or it's just, Hey Google. <laughs> oh, the, mi I, the mic is off. Um, yeah. Well, the, Google's version of Alexa, which I guess is just called Hey Google and doesn't have its own it, name. Well, this is the thing. So Google had a real problem with, it was called the Google Assistant, oh. but then you used Hey Google to activate it. So they just went with what people use. So it's called Hey Google now. Okay. Well, in any case, um, there were five or six of us standing in a room and one of us asked in the Airbnb, Google a question. And Google gave a very not kosher answer. I can't remember what the question was, but it was obvious that like the, the algorithm answering the question was a little bit biased in a bad direction. And then we were like, what else could we ask Google and what kind of answers will we get? And we, mm. you know, and then we stood there for a good, I'll admit we had beers in our hands. Uh, we stood yeah. there for probably a good 30, 45 minutes trying to figure out how many weird biases, sexist statements, racist statements could, you know, could we with innocent questions get Google to, to answer. And it was that, that the, the situation was accidental in the interaction with technology. But what happened was that five or six people had actually quite an intense conversation about what diversity in the internet means, how, you know, how algorithms are, are programmed to reflect their programmers. Right. But also to reflect you as a person, right? So for example, we've used the internet for long enough as probably have most people who are listening to this to remember a time where when you search Google, you everyone got the same results. If you were in the same country you'd, and you search Google, oh, with the third result on Google would be a legitimate thing to say because everyone got the same thing. Then obviously you now get personalized results, you're signed in, whatever. And that that's like an obvious thing for companies to do, to personalize the results to the people who are asking for them, which is why when people saying, oh, the, no one goes beyond the first page of Google these days, 
Why would you need to when all the results are personalized to your search history and, and whatever? So there's that. But then you like, well, that's what we want. We're giving people what we want. And this is what Smith actually talks about in the book as well. But if you just give people what they want, you end up with, you know, drug users gambling and not looking after themselves, potentially, because you're just feeding them stuff like dopamine all of the time and people stop showering for three weeks. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was only two weeks. It was only two In a bad way, in a bad way, <laughs> not in a good way like yours. Yeah. I don't know where... Um... Well, the other post I wanted to bring in here was your one, which has the German title, and I can't say it. Um, cyberspace, cyberspace and the Virtualitätslagerung. Right. And what does Virtualitätslagerung <laughs> Virtualitätslagerung literally means the virtual, the virtual storage facility. Um, okay. So for listeners who do not know my background, I, as a very smart person, thought that it would be a good idea to earn my master's at a German university with a program that was in German. Um, I had only been speaking German for about a year. <laughs> so that was a bit of a uh, interesting, it was, it was an interesting way to learn the language. I will tell you that academic master's level media education uh, and pedagogies in German. So they have a lot well, of words. You smashed it, so well done. Yes, I, I, I got through it. Um, but I have a post that I'll put in the show notes from 2011 um, where I was kind of making fun of some of these words. I was just trying to process what, what does this mean. Um, and really what this post is about or what the, the, virtual, the virtual storage facility <laughs> or penetration relationship... <laughs> <laughs> what it's all about is it's it's about how our again how our co cognition um is displays itself in a virtual environment versus in an analog environment and it's it's about the idea that we are we are complex human beings and we have multiple facets of our identities and our identity and who we are as people displays itself in different ways depending on how you're interacting with the world so this goes back to you know what you said in your post about uh, the idea that being anonymous is is not necessarily meaning that people are more honest and that there's data to show that um hmm. And so there's 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 basically there's multiple social worlds that we live within. Um, we live in a world where we are in a virtual environment, but we can see other people. We live in a virtual environment where we can't see other people and don't even know who they are, but can still communicate with them. We live in analog realities where there's you know no technology and how we. Well, those those four things you put in, I think, are really useful because people. In general, I would say, you know, you can see it in Musk's thing about like, we just need to authenticate all the humans. They assume that you have your online persona and you have your offline persona and that's it. But as you point out here, there's all those interact with one another. So, yeah, the, the real virtual, you say, which is your online persona separate from your offline persona. So that's kind of the common sense model. Um, so you might be anonymous online, you know, I use, or pseudonymous, so I use death fish with ones and threes and whatever as my gamer tag. Um, then you've got the real in virtual, 
your online personal kind of version of you, which is related to your offline persona. Um, so I'm getting tied up here, but you know what I mean? Like you've got, can you explain it? I'm doing a bad <laughs> job. Uh, so, so this is um, this is from a, a educational theory that I that I read about and reference on on the uh, on the post. And so the the four are the real virtual is you know you in an online space independent from your offline space. So this is when you're anonymous online. You're still you, but you are anonymous online, and you can actually pull out facets of your personality that you might not feel comfortable doing if your quote unquote real name was attached. The second one, the real in virtual, as opposed to the real virtual, the real in virtual is your you online as yourself. So related to your offline identity, meaning that you're using your real name um, or you're you're a non-anonymous user. So you so when this you is what Elon Musk is talking about and what every, the common sense view that this would solve trolling and any problems online. Yeah, but it Elon Musk is essentially saying that as long as you are whoever you say you are, both offline and online, then that's the best model. But our identities are more complex at that than that. And there is a reason for people to be anonymous online. A lot of really easy to understand reasons, uh, particularly uh, marginalized communities or you know, activist communities or you know people that need to be able to interact with the rest of the world without actually you know putting their real life identities at risk. Um, yeah. The third one is the the virtual in real. I think this is really interesting. And for people who have been on the internet for a really long time, this has certainly happened. When somebody has interacted with you in a virtual environment and then you meet them in real life. Um, so for, for people who have, you know, you are in an online forum or a space and then you go to a conference and you meet people who were also in that online forum and you've never met them before. This is really interesting. Mm -hmm. This is why people always say things like, oh, I thought you were taller, Yeah, you know, because you only saw them on the internet. So you don't know how tall they are, which every time mm -hmm. I see Doug in real life, I'm like, geez, you're a lot taller than I remember, even though I've met him in real life before. I just forget because you're yeah, my size people, on the screen. When you're interacting with an avatar. So I used to use Cary Grant as an avatar. And people literally thought I looked like that. Or I had a South Park character and people thought I was like a, this is when I was in my 20s, thought I was like a 45-year-old fat man. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of the opposite way round from usual in, in scare quotes. Yeah. And this is, this is called the the spillover effect is the way that this is is described because people learn about you in the virtual and then they meet you in real life. And then the, the, the last sort of facet that the, this particular theory goes into is called the virtual real. Um, and this is essentially when you're a victim of identity theft. So somebody else is acting like you in the real world. So if, if somebody were to steal your papers, your passport and your whatever social security card or tax ID number, whatever, and then pretend to be you to open a credit or to travel or whatever. Um, or like catfishing. Yes, same catfishing, same thing. Well, well same sort of identity uh, level social yeah. world, yeah. So it's much more complex than just Oh, and Mark Zuckerberg thinks this as well, because I've read this, that you just need to use your real name and then everything will be cool. And of course, governments who are very much in conversation with big tech also love this. 
And so it that kind of just spirals round and round and round. Well, and as I said in my post about the Twitter Musk thing, some of the best conversations, um, interactions I've had with people have been on Twitter, Mastodon, online forums with people who I don't know what their real names are and I don't know where they live. Yeah. It doesn't really matter sometimes. And see, the, the thing is, is that identity is so much more complicated than your name. It's yeah. so much more complicated than your number. Like the what you've said in, in a couple of the posts that we're sharing in the sh- show notes, you know, that our experiences and behaviors make up our identity. Our identity is mm-hmm. not just a, a series of symbols uh, that mark who we are. And, and the idea that you can authenticate identity is problematic for a lot of reasons. And authenticating using a real name uh, in a space where we finally figured out how we can, you know, connect and safely interact on all kinds of subjects and themes. And it's just, I mean, mm. it's it's all about control. And I don't know, I think, uh, you know, if you can only... Well, it's really authoritarian. Mm. Um, so someone on our Slack channel shared a link to counter.social. And it, I just laughed when I saw it, to be honest. Is it a parody um, or... It's not a parody. It it it's a parody. It looks like it's kind of a Macedon instance, but they've marked it as like, you know, everyone is authenticated. There's no child porn. There's no um, overseas actors. It says um, no trolls, no abuse, no ads, no fake news, no foreign influence ops. And you're like, great, but that feels quite authoritarian. My first reaction is want to bet. <laughs> exactly exactly so yeah anyway we have spent quite a lot of time talking about this so just to kind of summarize you should read the books that we have talked about because if you're interested in this podcast you'll probably be interested in the books we'll put them in the show notes um if you haven't read marshall McLuhan's stuff at least read the wikipedia article about him because he was a fascinating guy some people accuse him of being a, a charlatan but actually he was quite um, he could see the future, basically. So he could see where things were going. Um, and also read Laura's post, definitely, about the the German word, which I can't <laughs> say, and the four different types of identity, because it might be useful when you're talking to other people about verified identity on platforms and, mm. and stuff like that. Okay. That was fun. Cool. It went by really fast. I. Uh... It did. It did. So I hope you have a great holiday oh, and you. you don't get the Bora winds and uh, you get a nice relaxing time. And then we'll record another episode with a, a guest yes. when you come back. Great. Thanks for listening, everyone. Cheers for now. Bye.